And a good day to one and all, Dwight and Sir. Talk black and gold. We've been doing it one form or another since 1996. And uh, we don't really know what we're doing yet, Steve. We, we threw the first no. one up on a Friday night, but folks seem to be... Marketing geniuses. Yeah, yeah. yes. Folks, uh, folks seem to be finding their way to it. And what we will pass along, I think, in the simplest form is that we're working with some folks. And over the next, you know, couple of weeks, as, as we get into the habit of this and learn some things, that we'll make sure that it's up and out there everywhere it possibly can be. So we love the response. The fact that people are asking about the availability of the podcast in various locations. And uh, I think you and I feel awfully good about the way this uh, little gem of an idea has has kicked off. Yeah, and, and we're even doing a smarter thing and recording it on a Monday night instead of a Thursday night. So <laughs> that, uh, I mean, granted, our late Friday night launch was a rousing success, but we've... We found a, a room, we found some room for improvement and figured maybe we should record on Monday night and see what happens if we actually put it out earlier in the week. On the other hand, we could continue to break through all conventional broadcast rules and continue to release on Friday nights when nobody else is releasing anything except for us. Yeah, actually, yeah, we could have the whole thing to ourselves. And that brings... And should, it could be what people do on Friday nights. Absolutely. It could become the new Friday night fun. Just yeah. like General Custer, just like Napoleon, we too have a plan. Right. Well, Columbus Crew SC went to Seattle, as tough a place as there is to get a road point, not simply because it's a consistently good team, in this case, cup holders, um, but they are consistently a good team. They are cup holders. They play on an artificial surface, and they have a tremendous home uh, town advantage with the fans, not as large a... Uh, a crowd as, as might have been given health concerns, particularly that part of the country, but certainly uh, an outstanding turnout. And I thought a pretty competitive game that, as you would expect, there were times when Seattle really was uh, the team that was forcing the issue. But, but Columbus got the early lead and, and held on to the lead, only allowed a goal from the penalty spot. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, you take that here early in the season, you know, four points in your first two games against two high-quality opponents you've only given up one game a goal and you haven't given up a goal yet from the run of play yeah i mean you know big picture wise you can't really be too upset with this start getting a, a win and a draw against the quality of competition that they've faced and uh i mean our goal was better on saturday um you know it's nice to see a, a a really nice goal to you know to take the lead i mean a good team goal um you know, so I was encouraging and, and, you know, I mean, you know, pretty unfortunate on the, on the penalty and all that ensued with that. And, and frankly, he caught a break at the end when Jordan Morris had his header from the six that he somehow missed the frame. Mm -hmm. um, but, but still, I mean, all, all in all a good point. And I know after, after the game, you know, we saw Caleb Porter and, and some of the players, you know, talking about how they, they weren't necessarily satisfied with that point, you know, seem more of like a I'll I'll take it but you know they they wanted more considering they had the lead uh but but this kind of felt different to me than you know I think you know I think I mentioned last week you know the crew had, last year in seven different games they squandered 11 different points from leading positions you know at the end of the game or after the 75th minute and that of course happened again you know they you know two points 
dropped from a leading position um, on Saturday, but this one felt a little different. I mean, the penalty, um, you know, the ball hits hits off of Harrison Offel's thigh and then catches his arm. I mean, I don't know. I know they made the rule change, so I, I guess I don't know the exact technicalities, you know, whether it was a good or a bad call, but it's also, it's just one of those things that happens, you know, so... Um, it, you know, it, it just felt a little different than maybe the last year, like some of the, the mental mistakes that, you know, kind of happened at the end of the games. This this one felt like more of a caught a tough break sort of thing. Well, they certainly had some things go against them. You're right about that. You don't want to take away any credit. Uh, we're going to hear from Caleb Porter in just a little bit. He's going to talk about the kitchen sink being thrown at them because that's what Seattle does, uh-huh. particularly at home. Uh, your top Audi index guy for the match, no surprise, Raul Rui Diaz, although his point total was just slightly higher than Giassi Zardes was. So I think realistically, when, when you look at that, and then this, the third highest was actually Jonathan Mensa. So two of the top three uh, point getters, if you will, on the Audi index were actually from Columbus. Um, but Rui Diaz had one of those nights that we were talking about occurred for Columbus in their season opener back at home. Uh, the guy has a plethora of touches. You look at the timeline throughout the match. Um, there was a gap early where he didn't see much of the ball, but then pretty much the rest of the game saw it consistently until late when Columbus began to create some pressure. There was another gap, another absence, if you will, when he sort of dropped out of play. Um, but uh, interesting that Columbus in the Audi index, which of course is, is really confusing for everybody, Including, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you. You're referencing it. Do you, do you even know? Yeah, somebody counts what, up points to people, <laughs> and it has a sponsor. But right. uh, if if your striker and one of your center backs are the top two players, uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing because that means whatever the points in and of themselves may ultimately uh, say, Steve. What it says to me is you had two center channel guys who had the most influence for Columbus on the game. And it's a center back, and it's a striker. And, and I think uh, we always want to talk about that dynamic playmaker and the guy working uh, in the in the midfield. But if your center backs are holding up and your striker is, is having a dramatically positive impact on the game, that to me means that you're in the game. And they were in the game. Um, but, you know, Rui Diaz only had three turnovers the entire match. Two of them were in the first half. Everything else that he played was a successful pass. So... Um, I would further um, go to the side of Columbus Crew SC and say, you know, while they had their guy seen a lot of the ball, even as well as he did, they still couldn't produce a goal from the run of play. Yeah, and it's not a surprise to see Mensa up there on the Audi index, the inscrutable Audi index, because, uh, I mean, he was phenomenal. And I, I was actually kind of thinking after the game, you know, when he when he first came here, uh, you probably recall that uh, pretty pretty rough start yeah. uh, to his Columbus tenure um, that that first season. You know, in, in some ways, you know, you know when you start uh, evoking memories of like Miroslav Zepa or Mark Williams, uh, you know, it's probably not a, a you know a good first impression. But but I, and I don't I don't know you know, maybe what happened that year, but last year he was really good. And, and this year in the, you know, the first two games, he's been phenomenal. And so, I mean, you look at the game on, uh, on Saturday, I mean, the, the first half he made what probably good two or three 
really crucial, uh, you know, plays there to, to, to break up plays. I mean, almost like a flying ninja kick uh, um, to, to break up a play. And, you know, that could have been a very dangerous situation, uh, you know, for Seattle. And, and he's really become, you know, it's kind of like this stalwart, you know, the stalwart that they surely anticipated they were getting when they, when they signed him. Um, so it's, it's, and it's one of those things that, you know, you're just really happy to see a guy, you know, kind of blossom like that and, and, and live up to those initial expectations, especially when he, you know, he got off to such a rough start here. Um, you know, just to see him kind of grow into, you know, what he's, what he's capable of and what people expected of him. It's, that's always a good thing to see. And I think if you go back to that first season, and I know you will recall that Greg Berhalter spoke to, you know, very much on the defensive for Jonathan Mensah in that first mm-hmm. year. And I think it's as the head coach, he was trying to protect him a bit. Um, but I, I think you're right. I, and I do, do think it's a fair criticism that he was not the uh, influential player um, in the center of the back line that he was billed to be. But to me, that had a lot more to do with what we've seen so many times over the years and how difficult it is for a player or a coach from abroad to come into Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, because even today, I still think there's a fair percentage of those coming in have this preconceived notion of what the league is and what the talent level is, and they are continually proven wrong, uh, and we see that across the board. Uh, uh-huh. But in the case of Jonathan Mensah, you know, he was not a guy that ever made excuses for himself. He had higher expectations, and he did, in fact, blossom. So um, yeah. I look at the uh, – he had seven, over 90 minutes. He had seven giveaways on Saturday night. Uh, only one was in his own half. We talked about that coming out of, you know, the first game, and he was that was short of the center circle. Everything else that he turned over – uh, was in the attacking half, which is part of him playing out of the back, looking for those longer balls to spring midfielders or to maybe get, uh, you know, get a striker into play, whatever the case may be. So um, I think he had a good night. I think he has grown immensely and has really become a, a steady place in the center of the defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that is a very good point about you know players coming in you know from abroad. I mean, I've never had to move to a different part of the world for a job. I mean, I can only imagine. <laughs> you know, how difficult an adjustment, you know, yeah. that could be. I mean, you, you could say like, oh, the game's the game within the, within the, the lines of the field, but it's, it's just such a, you know, a huge adjustment and some, some players, you know, adapt right away. Some struggle and never get there. And, and some like Jonathan, um, you know, they find their footing and, and they get there. And, and like you said, you know, he never made excuses, and I and I still remember even that first year. I mean, the the players spoke so highly of him. You know, like him as a, him as a person. Like I, I don't think there was doubt that he would ever get there eventually. You know, I think is is just one of those things. Uh, you know, yeah, what, whatever the adjustment may have been, but I mean, he's he's certainly now, uh, you know, kind of the rock back there that you need. And speaking of Jonathan Mensah and his professionalism, his expectations, when asked about the point following the game, he was smart enough to acknowledge it's a good road point, but that expectations are different for the team in 2020. Start of the season, you have to make sure that you know you you bag in some points because uh, down the road you need it. So uh, disappointed, but you know we we're still happy with the point. Uh, tough place to play. We get a point, go home, and, and prepare for the next one. 
So I think in his own way, very soft-spoken. Um, it was clear to me, Steve, that uh, he was disappointed. He was absolutely disappointed that he's not going to be so far down the road to say a point away is a negative, but it certainly was nothing more than the least they expected. Yeah, and uh, and I'm, I'm sure you'll you know get get to Caleb kind of making the point about how expectations are, are different now and. Uh, you know, you know, maybe in the in the past you come out to Seattle like, oh gosh, I hope we could just get a point. You know, if we could somehow get a point, that would be huge. Yeah. Um. And and uh, you know, and and Jonathan is one of the many people after the game that were kind of expressing that. Uh, I mean, they'll take it, but but they certainly wanted more. But I think our standards have raised. Um, and uh, so I think uh, in some ways we're grounded, a little bit grounded, the feeling of the draw. And that's a good thing because our standards have raised. A um, lot to learn from the game. Um, very good team, Seattle. Uh, they definitely threw the kitchen sink at, at us in the second half. Uh, that's them. Uh, you saw it last week, right, when they were down. They ended up winning the game, and so good by us to get through. Uh, we've been a lot, even broke a little some. Um, so we'll look at the film. We'll get better, and uh, the good news is uh, getting better without losing is, is the way we want to do it this year. It's a long season. It's just game number two. They played a good team coming off of a dramatic win at home. The announced crowd. Uh, 33,080, we all know it was less than that, and we all know why, although most, if not all, professional sports outside of Major League Soccer uh, announce attendance as tickets issued as opposed to tickets in the stands. I don't even really mm-hmm. want to go too far down that road other than uh, to say that it is a difficult place, and it has proven statistically to be one of the toughest places in Major League Soccer on a consistent basis, right? Uh, Mafre Stadium, the fortress idea. Well, there have been some troubling seasons for the black and gold historically where it wasn't a place that teams were afraid to come in and play to win rather than seeking nothing worse than that road draw. But Seattle is year in and year out as tough a place to play as there is in Major League Soccer. Um, I thought it was a a bit of a difficult night for Pedro Santos. He was much closer to 50-50 in successful versus unsuccessful passes. Uh, but uh, Lucas went out there, and the Z-Man, uh, almost a 4-1 to one to the positive. So you've got your engines in the middle in terms of distributing the ball that were still pretty successful. Obviously, uh, we talked about Zardes and his impact. So I think that uh, Caleb Porter got a, a lot of what he would like, but at the same time, this is a quality team. And uh, as the head coach said, you know, they, they really threw everything at Columbus for a period of time. Yeah, and, I'm, and I, I want to circle back to Jossie here for a minute because, uh, you know, I always feel like the crew are, are going good when, um, in any sort of pejorative sense. But, but you know, I mean, Jossie's the type of guy that makes those runs in the box and, you know, kind of depends on that service. He's not a guy that's going to be, you know, breaking people's ankles, cutting back on them and, you know, doing all sorts of crazy dribbling stuff to, to create – chances right he's he's a guy who knows how to find those spaces to get himself in the right spot and gets that service and and puts him away and 
you know, when I when I see Jossie tapping in balls from the six, you know, I I think that's a sign that the, that the crew are doing some good things. And in this case, you know, Artur got the ball out wide to to Diaz. He sent that perfect ball in. You had a near post run to kind of draw the defender away. And and I thought I thought it was kind of neat after the game when Jossie said he didn't even see the the ball coming in. I mean, he would have seen it at the last second, but he made that run not knowing that the ball was coming, but he just knew that that's where the ball was going to go. Um, and, and those are the, the type of goals that, that Jossie scores, and those are the type of goals that you'd love to see the crew put together because that, you know that's going to be a team goal. Between Jossie Zardes and the two Kamaras, uh, so the primary striker we've seen, you know, getting closer and closer to a 10-year run now, but um, the thing they all shared, they're guys that did the work. They did the little things. Mm -hmm. They did the running. And I can understand from a neutral perspective at the national team level why much of the country is going to have a bleh, sort of a, a sense about Jossie Zardes. But he's one of those guys, when you see him on a, on a day-in, day-out, uh, you know, 34 matches over the course of the season, and you see all the little things he does, the personality that he brings, the passion, the work rate. He only had two shots. He's your striker. He's the lone striker in this formation. He only had two shots, but he scored one. Both shots were on target. Now, you'd like to double, if not triple, those numbers. You'd, you'd certainly like him to be getting five or six shots off, you know, in a game. Uh, but if you get two and you put them both on and you convert one of them, um, you know, you're getting very much out of that guy. And you're right. He did the work. He knew where he was supposed to be. It wasn't necessarily where he wanted to be or the type of opportunity he wanted, but he knew when the ball got into the box from an attacking perspective, right side, that his place was to be starting at least outside the post nearest him, so the weak side, and then make his run on an angle inside that post. He did it as the ball showed up, clearly on side. And a nice touch, uh, you know, got his body behind the ball, didn't really have to shoot it, let the pace of the pass be the pace necessary to cross the goal line. And that's a thing that quality goal scorers understand is that a lot of times you don't need to shoot the ball. You just redirect mm -hmm. it, right? It's already moving. It already has the momentum. You're just telling it to go in a different direction. And I thought he did that beautifully. Yes, he did. So from a Seattle perspective, uh, they get their loan strike of the night from the penalty spot twice um, as right. the as the rule is written. So, uh, yes, the letter of the law, it's a handball, and it's inside the penalty area. By the letter of the law, Eloy Room stepped off his line before the shot was taken. What impressed me about all of that at that stage of the game was that it didn't become step one in a two-step process. It wasn't like they played and played and played Columbus, finally got to this stage of the game, gave up the equalizer after their goalkeeper had saved the penalty in the first place, and then saw you know Seattle do what they had done previously, and that's complete the comeback. Also keep in mind that Eloy Room did get his hand on the second penalty, was not able to stop it, yeah. but did get a touch to it again. So the emotional highs and lows that come with penalties, you know, and nobody ever believes they gave up a penalty. So you get that emotional piece of arguing with the referee, <laughs> even when it's clear. Then you get the emotional rise off of, well, we shouldn't have given up a penalty. We did, but our keeper saved it. And then you go again. So, I mean, that was two emotional dives in a very short amount of time that Columbus found their way through. Well, and I, you know, you say like the letter of the law, I saw MLS on the MLS website today on Monday, they, um, you know, the video where they kind of review all the 
questionable calls or, or controversial calls, I should say. Um, and they, they were saying, you know, by the letter of the law, since it hit off his leg first, because the I guess the rule says if it if it hits off of your body first and then hits your arm, it should not be a handball. Or that that, that was what the conclusion was on the MLS website. Yeah, they're uh, Okay. They they very well no, could be. I mean, I you, I'm giving you I, I mean, a hard I, I time, you, but I know. Well, I'm saying, I mean, at, at the time, you know, when I'm watching the game, I was just like, well, yeah, you know, tough break. I mean, I, I didn't really argue about it, but it was just kind of interesting today to see the, the video on the MLS website yeah. saying that, like, they were like, no, that shouldn't have been a penalty. And, yeah. that, and that wasn't the referee. I mean, that was. Sure, sure. Now, yeah. it, it, you know, a lot of this is still interpretation. The reason why I disagree is because Harrison's arm was extended away from the body. And he mm-hmm. was in direct line of the ball. And it did hit him. If he's still, you know, if he goes into that ball, you see a lot of defenders and they clasp their hands behind their back um, mm-hmm. to give you that very clear uh, visual piece of information. I think that if, if his hands are behind his back or still at his side in a neutral position, I think then you, you would just look the other way. But because his, ball, his, his arm was away from his body yeah. and after the deflection, if it doesn't hit that arm, it's going to continue in the field of play. That's the other side of that line that I'm sure many people will would love to argue over years to come. Yeah, I, I don't. Know. I think it was going to go out for a corner. I think it would have gone out before it got to the the goal. But I think it, it's just. I think it's just hard for a defender. I mean, one, he's lifting his leg, so his arm has to go somewhere. You know, I mean, he did kind of stick his leg out to get to that ball. Uh, I mean, I'm, and I'm not necessarily arguing the call. I, I think it's just hard for defenders in general. And, you know, listen, I mean, the, the game this week, could the very same thing could happen. It could go in our favor, you know, so I'm not I'm not necessarily complaining about the call. But I, 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 I just chalk it up to just more of a tough break. I mean, he, he's, his arm is moving because his leg is moving because he's, you know, kind of reaching for the ball and then hits off his leg, hits his arm, um, you know kind of a thing but now with with Aloy Room I, I saw some people online you know whether Twitter or, or message boards or you know what have you you know saying that you know that, that's just kind of tough for for goalkeepers and you know not necessarily maybe agreeing with the retake but I mean it is the rule I mean I, I don't know where you really draw the line how how far can you come off before it's justifiable to call that? You know, I mean, I mean, I'm glad this wasn't around in 1999 when Brianna Scurry was like halfway to the penalty spot, saving games, in the, saving goals in the world cup final. But uh, I mean, it, it's just, I mean, the rules, the rule. I mean, I think it was the right call to, to, to take it over again. And, and he's still, like you said, he still almost saved the second one. Still got his fingers on it. Yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, maybe last season we were happy with this point, but uh, and of course the point is important. It's a difficult road uh, road game, but yeah, I felt it was more in the game, you know, and especially how we conceded the goal with like that. And uh, we had some chances also to, to to score, and they also had some chances. But I think if we played it uh, in some situation a little bit better, we we could score more. So uh, yeah, we have to learn from this, but uh, we take this point uh, point home. You know, he did his job. He did his job, and ultimately, right or wrong, it is what it is. Too emotional peaks um, on the road on an artificial surface before a hostile crowd and yet not only uh, did they get out of there with the point while, while yes Seattle certainly had a couple of really good chances they could have scored uh, Columbus narrowly missed out at the buzzer on winning that game too so 
Um, you know, and I think I think it's reflective in in some of the the Seattle response is that's one of those games where a draw probably was the fair outcome. Each team could make their case for a couple of moments during the ninety that might have changed things on their behalf. But I think that just goes right back into um, what we're saying, and that is, you know, to me that that was a that was an even match, and each team got a point out of it. I would have loved for Columbus to have pulled the winner out been really disappointed to have not gotten the point and wound up losing that game. And I think the sort of middling feeling we get when we see a draw is probably the way we're supposed to be feeling right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you talked about Seattle always being a tough place to play uh, during the, you know, maybe it was like before the game, uh, Larry Johnson, who uh, he does a Helltown beer blog. He put out a tweet. He does a lot of data analysis type stuff. And he said that, uh, East Coast teams playing a, a night mm-hmm. game on the West Coast, mm-hmm. that, that that, you know, from his research, I mean, I, I didn't see all the numbers, but he, he said that over time that has proven to be worth half a goal and one point compared to any other road type of matchup. And uh, and so, I mean, that, that's just tough right there. But And I believe it, and I responded to him on Twitter because, I mean, I think back to uh, 2010 when I went out with the team for the open cup final and now granted this game, you know, we're dealing with the charter flight, you know, much better situation than in 2010. But I remember, I mean, we left in the morning, had to fly, you know, we had to wait around the Columbus airport for a while, you know, cause we had to get there nice and early and, you know, Tucker Walther is taking care of everything, but you still, you're dealing with a traveling party of, you know, 30 people or 35, whatever people and all that, entails then we have to fly to chicago then we had like a layover in chicago for four or five hours or something crazy it may, may have even been a delay with our flight to seattle then we fly all the way out to seattle we get there and then you have to wait on all the bags and you cannot believe how much baggage is involved when a professional sports team is traveling like that so we, we just had cart after cart after cart yeah, travel with a hockey team sometime Oh my gosh! I can't even imagine with all their their pads and sticks and yeah, way more than a soccer team. I mean, the soccer team was impressive enough, just this mountain of of bags. So you know, it's already late at night. We're we're there. We've got this mountain of bags. Everybody's tired. Everyone just wants to go to the hotel. But then part of like the the pickup area where we would normally meet the bus and load everything on the bus and go, that was closed down for whatever reason. So the bus was parked like you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred feet away or two thousand feet away, you know, often off in the distance. The airport didn't have like any like trucks, not like trucks, but you know, like golf cart things where you could load a bunch yep. of stuff on it. They they didn't have anything like that available. So we every one of us, players included, had to drag two of these giant equipment bags and walk you know, like a third of a mile or whatever, you know, to get to this bus while we're dragging, you know, everyone's got like a bag over their shoulder and they're like dragging two other bags. And I remember like Jason Gary just looked at me and he was just like, I'm so glad you're here for this. You know? So now (laughs) he's like, so now next time when you see an MLS team, just having an absolute shocker on the opposite coast, you know why he's like, this is what happens, you know? And uh, I mean, it was certainly illuminating. And so when you see these MLS records of, you know, teams that have to travel three time zones and and their their records aren't very good in those instances. Uh, 
you know, <laughs> there's there's certainly a lot to it. You know, not just the body clock type stuff, but you know, just the the travel. And and hopefully that's going to lessen now that you know with the new CBA and there's the minimum of eight charter legs. And, and I'm sure most teams, you know, would do like the crew did. You're gonna, you're definitely going to want to use those mandatory charter legs on the, these cross country flights and and you know that could hopefully eliminate a lot of you know some of the, the gr- more grueling aspects of these these cross-country trips because yeah w- what i saw in 2010 i was like wow you know i i, I can definitely see jason gary's point that, that he was making <laughs> that day thankfully for the open cup i think we went out a little bit early than you would for a, a normal game you know given the stakes so you know i don't i don't know that it ended up being a huge detriment but it was certainly illuminating that's for sure to to go through it with those guys and to add to your point about the travel you think about all the years with the tv broadcast where we were traveling for with the team before most of us started doing it out of the studio Uh, because they were flying commercially and the number of people traveling it was nearly impossible for them to get direct flights other than a handful of places like a dc uh, a chicago Mm -hmm. you know as an example but when we would travel or when Bill McDermott was my partner because he'd be coming from St. Louis, uh, we didn't have those issues. And if there was a direct flight available, um, 95% of the time we could get on it. And I think that just sort of accents what we're talking about. And the team mm-hmm. itself had to deal with changing planes and the luggage and, you know, and all those other things. Hey, I want to get back real quickly because um, you made the point about the MLS follow-up and they do that after each week's games about cards and decisions that were made. Um, mm-hmm. It says the following will not usually. So usually is your out. Okay. There's, yeah, there's a weasel word in there. Okay. Yes. We, nicely played. Uh, they usually not be a free kick. The ball touches a player's hand or arm directly from their own head, body, or foot. That is unless the play falls under the previous deliberate handball definition, or in this case, the arm or hand that makes the body unnaturally bigger. So the ball goes into his body initially. If his arms are at his side, Harrison Awful, I don't think the whistle uh-huh. blows, but his right arm was clearly extended away from his body. In other words, had his arm not been out, the ball would have continued. Yeah. Now, yeah. does it stay in play? Does it go out of bounds? Well, they don't They don't have to worry about that, do they? Right, right. Yeah. So no. um, I, I don't think anybody would have been overly shocked if that hadn't been called. Um, but when your, your rule, when your law – when your phraseology includes words like usually or unless. <laughs> right. Well, you think, uh, yeah, you, I, you, mean, I think we've made our point on that one. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that it was necessarily a, a harsh call or anything. I, I, I didn't really think much of it until I saw that today. And I was like, huh, well, mm-hmm. maybe. You know? And sure. plus, you know, always looking for a reason to second guess Jair Marufo, uh, <laughs> you know, given his history with, with the crew. So, uh, yeah. um, now, yeah, after for, the game, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was, I, I didn't know if we wanted to get into Jersey Gate from 2009 or not. No, I do. <laughs> and before we get there, just to sort of put a bow, thank you very much, Neil Sika, to put a bow on the 1 1 final. Um, as you would imagine, Eloy Room after the game wasn't really going to say too much about the penalty kit. You know, he believes that yeah. he did. He was allowed to do what he did, the referee saw it differently. Um, but what I thought was interesting is that he echoed the words of his teammates and his head coach in saying that uh, this isn't 2019, this is 2020, and the expectations are up. 
and uh, we wanted more than a draw out of this game. So, Steve, we've heard from, from three different folks who, using their own words in, in, in framing their comments in different ways, have all had the same message, which is clearly the one that the coaching staff has been preaching, and that is we're not going to be satisfied. We'll accept, in this case, the point, but we're not going to be satisfied. We have higher expectations, and we want to get the full three in these types of situations, and they've got 32 more games, half of those on the road, to prove it. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I mean, they, you know, they came into the season with high expectations, and they're, you know, certainly after two games, there's no uh, taking their foot off the gas in terms of uh, how they feel about those expectations. So let's uh, see see what they can put together. I'm with you now. Anytime you use the word "gate" in a sentence, I get really giddy. So um, I put the hard pause on that momentarily. But let's let's go back in time. <laughs> to Jersey Gate, because you know, as well as I do, that once we get through Jersey Gate, we're going to go back even farther in time ahead of the third game of the 20 season, and we're going to relive the third game of the 96 campaign. Um, Yeah, so for for those true fans who don't remember, you know, or newer fans who don't remember, or or people who just want to step back in time and remember something that made everyone very angry... uh, so what happened was it was pretty early in the 2009 season. So this was, you know, the crew defending MLS cup champs got off to a winless start. Uh, I think it ended up going, what about seven games or something, but this, this was maybe the fourth game of the year. Something it was in April um, against Chicago. So the, you know, we beat the fire in the Eastern conference final the previous year. So this was like the, you know, kind of a big rematch game at home. Um, and, and for 2008 and 2009, those games against Chicago were just super intense. They were just great games, two pretty evenly matched teams. And and the crew come out, jump out to a 2 nothing lead. Everything's, you know, going great. But then in the second half, now there were actually a series of plays kind of leading up to this. I, I remember uh, there were uh, – I remember Eric Bruner, like, just completely destroyed somebody on, on Chicago – definitely you know should have been a card and you know there's there's no call um chicago then like right after that i I think alejandro moreno was going in what looked to be a breakaway got pulled down from behind no call you know so there's uh you know a couple different things uh oh earlier than that john thornton went in studs up on gino padula so all this is happening like in a couple of minutes so you have Thornton goes in, studs up on Gino Padula. Should have been a card, no call. Then you have Bruner like blowing up somebody. I can't remember who it was, but I remember Bruner blew up somebody and there's no call. Then uh, Alejandro Moreno gets pulled down in a clear card situation. There's no call. And all of a sudden, you have Gino Padula, who to that point had committed like two fouls all season. And as we know, I mean, he was a very, very clean player, right? You know, so there's like a ball it's about waist high and Gino sticks up his foot to go get the ball to hit, hit the ball. And Blanco Chicago fire star and Mexican national team star much reviled in Columbus and around the league steps into Gino from the side. And like Gino's calf hits Blanco, like in the midsection or something. And Blanco goes down, he's holding his knee, like he's been impaled and it's a straight red card. 
and people are just like, like, what the heck just happened? How is this a red card? Especially after like three major plays went by with with nothing. And uh, but then after the game, Blanco opens up the door to the referee's locker room and tosses his jersey to Jair Marufo, the referee who gave this very controversial and unwarranted red card. And by the way, Chicago then up a man comes back, scores two goals and, and ties the game and the game ends in a draw. So, so everyone's already, you know, pretty upset about this call and the, the impact it had on the game. But then afterward in front of many, many witnesses, Blanco gives his Jersey to the referee. And this caused a big uproar because also apparently at halftime, Blanco was chewing out Marufo in the uh, in the tunnel and trying to get into the referee's locker room at halftime, and was like, you know, screaming at him and berating him and whatever at halftime. And then shortly into the second half, Blanco gets this the benefit of this ridiculous red card call. And then the, the jersey thing happens after the game in front of a lot of people, and it turns into you know quite a big controversy. Um, in the end, I think Marufo got suspended for like two games or something. Blanco didn't get in trouble at all. Uh, and it turns out like Marufo's family and Blanco's family go way back or, you know, they're friends back in Mexico or something. I'd... But it, it was, it's always been, uh, you know, to this day, you'll hear crew fans, you know, mention this when, when mm -hmm. Marufo <laughs> uh, referees a crew game. Uh, that was, you know, certainly a memorable moment uh, from crew history, you know, quite a, quite a controversial moment that, you know, really upset a lot of people back in the day. Part of the lovely, wonderful history that for many has either been lost or remains unknown because they're newer to the league. And uh, a big part of why we decided to do this was, sure, keep up with the team, but um, to be able to compare and contrast and relive some of these these moments from uh, years gone by and um, what we might be able to develop out of that uh, in the future uh, is exciting as well. But, yeah, that was uh, that was a tough one. That was that one hit hard well, on a couple of different levels. Yeah, and I, and and Marufo's, you know, defense after the game, he was like, "Hey, I didn't know, like." He said he didn't ask for the jersey, and and you know, Blanco just kind of threw it at him. You know, in retrospect, even if that's the case, you know, he probably should have given it back, especially since it happened in front of so many people. Sure. You know, I mean, but maybe like in the in the moment, you're just like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, I'm just going to retreat back into this, you know, into my referee's locker room and just get away from the madness and you know you don't really think of it or you know i i don't know that there was necessarily you know any sort of like quid pro quo thing going on with this jersey or anything but but it was you know definitely a terrible look and it it you know it definitely ruffled a lot of feathers at the time and so you know i i'm not saying that you know you you, you know we talk about no, this handball call this handball call in this game and and then making the penalty kick be retaken because Aloy came off his line you know i i don't think you know this blanco thing has anything you know to do with that and i, and right. I don't think these were bad bad calls by marufo at all but you know and you know for crew fans the jokes are still there i mean even on twitter i was like always offer the jersey Aloy. always offer the jersey yes you know it's just a, it's just a just a little piece of crew lore that people still yeah. like to you know Joke no, about. I, you know, I'm with you, and I think that I think that's part of it. And and the look does matter. The appearance does matter. Um, and in that moment when the jersey was tossed his way, uh, yeah, toss it back. You know, there is a way to respond, uh, and that's just sort of added fuel to the fire, as the saying goes. Yeah, uh, yeah. pun intended. So, last week, 
had a lot of really positive response to it, but uh, want to continue our little visit back down through the inaugural season of 1996. Now, Columbus in that campaign opened up with consecutive home games. They won the first 4-0 over United. Most people remember that one. Crowd, by the way, uh, 25,266. And then the second game of the season, seven days later, was also at home. This was a crowd of 24,434 as Carlos Valderrama, Steve Ralston, uh, brought in the Tampa Bay Mutiny. And, of course, the Mutiny would go on and win that game 2-1. And then for the first time, the black and gold took to the road uh, and played before 26,416 at Giants Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey, home of the Metro Stars, or as they were far more affectionately known, and one of the great logos, in my opinion, in this league, because it wasn't official necessarily but has disappeared, was the one of the cartoon cab. The cabbies provided the opposition. And uh, it would prove to be uh, the first road win in club history. Uh, Brian Bliss would get the team on the board at zeros in minute 13. Now Bliss, can he get to it? No, nope. he slips to the ground, loses the ball, gets back up. And now he's got a chance, looking ahead, cut right back into the pressure. Had more space to the far side, but brought it back. Gives it to McBride, chips it. Bliss brings it down, lifts it up in the air. Great save, rebound, and 10! Brian Bliss on the board, 31-45 to go in half number one, and Columbus leads. Columbus would go on to protect that lead, as you recall, Steve, and uh, just before the game expired, so in the 87th minute, the one name that was consistently showing up in one form or another on the score sheet uh, hit the ball that ended up an own goal, the first goal the team had ever had. Dr. Kamalo, he scored outright against Tampa in the 2-1 loss. And he would be directly involved in the 87th minute goal that put this match away uh, at Giant Stadium. It was a 2-0 final, and the the uh, goal scored by Billy Thompson. O'Shaughnessy gets it to McBride. Kamalo breaks. He's offside, but we don't get a flag. Pause is wide open, but they go near side. Thompson's into the box. Shoots. He scores. Billy Thompson gets into the box and rips it at the near post. 2.50 to go in the match, and Columbus is up 2-zip. Two 2-0 two would be the final score in the game. The Cabbies would outshoot Columbus by nearly a 2-1 to one clip at 23-12. to 12. There were 37 fouls in the game, and the teams combined, wow. yeah, the teams combined for 11 corners. So you had the turf, uh, an early version of 96 of what we know today. So it wasn't like the old AstroTurf stuff, but it was much different surface. Uh, on the road, big win. Columbus goes to two and one. Third, pretty solid cloud, a crowd in front of in, in which they played. We could try that all over again. Third <laughs> consecutive large crowd. The crew would play in front of. That would change dramatically because game four of the season for another night was in Kansas City, and uh, they were Ooh, regularly I... dressing seventy thousand fans as seats. I cannot wait to talk about that game because I distinctly remember listening to your radio call. I mean, I, I could tell you exactly where I was, you know, listening to that Kansas City game. So I guess we'll talk about that next week. Um, yeah, this this game against the Metro Stars, I don't think I saw that game even. But didn't did Bo O'Shani make a penalty kick save in that game? Am I remembering correctly? You know what? That's a great question, and I'm going to have to do a little bit more research. That doesn't come to mind immediately. But I will have to go back and check that one out. Uh, for some reason, that just popped into my head. I don't know if that's legitimate or not. Um, 
that that popped into my brain for some reason though but uh but yeah it, again it's it's just kind of neat to hear you know some of these these old names in your radio call and you know of course brian bliss you know went on to you know you know he played for the crew in 96 and i believe part of 97 got traded mid-season to those metro stars but uh you know more recently you know for crew fans uh probably better known as the technical director for the massive champions of 2008 and and was with the club through uh, the 2013 season, even serving as interim coach. And Blissey's also a uh, a guy who played for my beloved Cleveland Force when I when I was a kid growing up. And he always loved when I brought that up. I'd be like, oh, when I was a kid, I remember when you played for the Force. He was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, making him making him sound old. Yeah, but well, uh, that was my that that was part of my my history as well. The old indoor game before MLS got rolling. Made a number of trips to Cleveland, among other cities around the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I was, you know, excited when when Lissy came back to Ohio to, to play for the crew when we were starting up in 96, because that was kind of a, a link to my mm-hmm. my past. And, and Timo Leakowski was the forces coach, and he was, of course, the crew's first coach. And then uh, Marcelo Carrera, you, last week you mentioned, had played for the Canton Invaders and... Yep. Uh, and so, you know, there were a couple of Northeast Ohio indoor soccer ties to that, that first crew team. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was neat to hear a, a radio call of, of Brian Bliss scoring a goal. And then, of course, anytime you hear anything with Dr. Kamalo, that's always a treat. It is. It is. Just like, just like Christmas, 365 days a year, you have treats when Dr. Kamalo's involved. Steve Zirk, it's uh, a wrap on show two of year one for the program. Dwight and Zirk talk black and gold. Uh, I look forward to reminiscing with you about not only what occurs at Montfrey Stadium this weekend, but then when we get to take you back in the time machine to the 10-goal Kansas City-Columbus affair in front of 8,000 people at Arrowhead. I cannot wait for that because, I, like I said, I remember listening to that game on the radio and hanging on to every word of your call. <laughs> And it was and it was pure madness. All righty, you know, thanks. I, Go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say just just to fit all those clips in, it's gonna be like a double episode or something. Just yeah, just well, the goal calls alone. Yeah, we'll have to. Well, that's a good point. We'll think about that. One. <laughs> um, so that's a wrap on the show. Uh, we're glad you joined us. If you're new, never forget. There's always space for another chair at the dinner table with Cirque and Dwight.